all of the stories that have I've been rehearsing in my head about myself for 40 years are just stories and are in are very flexible. In fact, they're almost empty and I could start a new story and it would almost be just as true as the story I've carried around. That was one thing. The other thing was that everything that psychedelics sprung on me about the nature of reality or the glory of nature or my love for my fellow human beings, or indeed the sheer downright fucking strangeness of the world is somehow already there. And psychedelics recast it in their own theater, but it's accessible without the drugs themselves. All right, folks, welcome to another episode of the show. Today's show is a doozy, and if you are, like I am, very uh, immersed in the world of podcasts, I listen to a lot of them, it won't be new to you, probably, this very important and emerging conversation that we are having culturally about the role of psychedelics. These compounds and or plant medicines are now officially, and I think accurately, being labeled as breakthrough therapies, therapies for treating mental illness, used to heal trauma, conquer addiction, and enhance well-being. Now, on this show, there's so many other shows that have gone really, really deep on this topic, and that's one of the reasons that I haven't had a lot of guests who orient around these new plant medicines on the show because so many other shows go so deep on the topic. And yet, this is one of the reasons that our guest today, Andy Mitchell, is on the show. Andy Mitchell is the right person to bring this message to our audience. He's a clinical neuropsychologist who has a long history of treating patients with all kinds of different neurological conditions, psychiatric conditions, including brain traumas, dementia, epilepsy, depression, anxiety disorders. He's done this in a clinical setting in London for basically his professional life. His presentation of this material in a really interesting way is what I consider a great primer. This is the introductory dose, if you will, uh, of this medicine and how it is uh, emerging on our culture and can be extremely valuable. If you are uh, someone who is already interested and connected to this sort of information, this is going to be, I think, incredibly valuable. You'll get to see the way that Andy tackles these challenges and, and the discussion around these medicines in a new way. And if this information is new to you, I think, again, it's a great primer. Now, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm not a doctor. And you know what you hear on this show is not by any means a recommendation. Again, Andy is a clinical neuropsychologist, and he is presenting his experiences in his, again, book called 10 Trips, The New Reality of Psychedelics. Uh, it's really important that you, uh, I think, get to understand a little bit about what this movement is for, how it can be valuable to people in every community, but specifically the community that we orient around here, the creators, the entrepreneurs, people who are interested in high performance and being showing up in the world rather as the best version of themselves. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Andy Mitchell and yours truly. Andy Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thanks for being a guest. Thanks for having me, Chase. I understand you're in Oxford today, which is uh, eight hours on the other side of where I am here in my studio in Seattle. Uh, and you have just written a new book. And the book, I'm going to take just a few seconds, despite uh, introducing you to our audience in the introduction, this is a book 
about psychedelics. And we haven't done a lot of psychedelic coverage on this show because so many other shows have really gone deep on this. And one of the specific reasons that I did want to have you on the show was because a lot of that work that came out a number of years ago has had a chance to simmer into the public consciousness. And your work is extremely well-timed and I think right on cue for our audience. So the question that I want to start with is what inspired you to do this work? Was it some of the work that you'd seen earlier? Was it a personal journey for you? Why does a scientist like yourself, who uh, do you call yourself uh, a neuropsychologist? What, how do you call yourself? What, what do you refer yeah, to yourself? I'm as? a recovering neuropsychologist. I haven't practiced for a couple of years, but yeah, I worked clinically for 20 years in, in a big London hospital. So why, with that background and the, you know, the, the table set by others before you, what made you want to dive into this work? Okay, well, uh, at a personal level, I'd, I'd read Michael Pollan's book in 2018, shortly after it came out. I had yes. no radar for what was going on in psychedelics um, prior to that. Uh, but it certainly was, it was persuasive, and it made me curious intellectually but also sort of recreationally. Full disclosure, I've not drunk or take drugs for 20 years, and psychedelics somehow got lo loped in with all the, you know, all the sort of substance abuse from my early 20s. So that sure. door was closed. But reading Pollen's book and then meeting a couple of people out on the West Coast piqued my interest, and I ended up... Um, it actually, but I'll tell you what happened was I was in Whole Foods car park in uh, Monterey, just above Big Sur. And this yes. lady walked across the car park and her hair was bouncing in the sun. And I left her a note in her windscreen wiper saying, uh, English doctor, just in Big Sur for a week or two, hit me up if you, if you want. Well, we met up and it turned out that she was leading psychedelic ceremonies. And we got into a kind of ding dong. Because I, you know, at the time I was thinking, well, this, you mean you're basically a drug addict that sings while you're high um, uh, and, 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 you know, uh, smudges people's foreheads while you're doing it. And she, she pushed back and started giving me a strong account of the, the, the various spiritual and psychological benefits of the ceremonies she was holding. And she, over the course of a sort of week, she twisted my arm. And next thing I knew it, I was smack bang in the middle of a toad ceremony in the mountains above Santa Cruz, having my, as Michael Pollan suggested, having my mind turned into one of those shacks on Bikini Atoll when the, when the nuclear bombs were tested. And I, so then I had, so then I had firsthand experience of what these things were, as well as Michael Pollan's book. And I saw I was doing some other things. I'd saw, I was moving away from clinical work in an institution, and I'd, I'd written a couple of things with uh, uh, some publishers. And the publishers said, you know, Michael Pollan's book is so uh, lucid and so square, for want of a better word, and in it's entrained this giant kind of explosion of hype and research and venture capital investment is there something we can do to take a different look at it and update it, provide a broader canvas? And I, I, I put that in my pipe and I smoked it. And I thought, well, I would like to 
look at all of the pollen just looks at three substances i would look like to look at 10 different substances pollen just looks really at uh, clinical settings and and what you might call new age settings and i wanted to uh explore the entire panoply of psychedelic possibilities so i pitched to the publishers this idea of taking 10 trips in 10 different settings that covered the gamut of psychedelic experience and then just use that as a way of sort of up, you know answering uh pollen's book five years on updating it a little bit putting a slightly different spin on it broadening the canvas so that that was the that was how it was conceived that was the genesis of it brilliant uh exploration explication of the how and the why and to me if i if i may add you know my two cents to the bit you mentioned about Poland, his it's, it was very careful and i think it needed to be very careful and very surgical because he was navigating material uh, that had been largely dormant for decades um and had all kinds of cultural baggage and so his book again we're talking about michael Pollan's book how to change your mind uh and it was very careful needed to be and as you point out uh, thank you again for sending a copy of your book. I've got it here, 10 Trips. Um, it is anything but that. And it's not that it's like a wild rock star account of your adventures, but I do think it is now a number of years on, five or six years on. It's a valuable, uh, almost a zooming out of the uh, on on the lens that we have for um, psychedelics. So this leads me to wanting to dive in deeper on, okay, you were just essentially, you do, let me just say one please, more thing. Cause I, love I, it. I rather loosely describe Pollen's book as square. And I just want to qualify that because he, he was, he was introducing the history of psychedelic research and the current, the growing evidence base for the applications of psychedelic um, therapies in mental health populations. He was introducing that not to the psychedelic choir, people who'd been taking psychedelics in one form or another, but to those, to those, that broad swathe of the young and the baby boomers who had respected and fallen in love with his voice and his take on the world, particularly the natural world and his, uh, his, um, his acuity as a journalist. So he, he, he was building trust. But what I felt that the trade-off with that is that he misses some of the wildness, some of the uh, trickster-like qualities, the comedy, the the uh, the, and also the darker aspects of uh, psychedelics, both commercially yes. and in terms of the relationships with the indigenous people. And he's since redressed that in the documentaries that he's done. Yes. It just felt like a narrow aperture. And there was plenty room, plenty of room to broaden the narratives. Yeah, that was a that that was very helpful. Thank you for articulating that. And that's also what I meant. I'll I will parrot what you just said there. To me, his work needed to be careful, specifically because it was, you know, the first in a series of new voices to really say that this has broad application. And he did, however, focus on just a handful of substances and in a clinical setting. But again, I think that was to build trust. Yours, on the other hand, does there is comedy in your book and you also go far beyond the clinical setting. So this is where I want to shift gears, though, right up front here. Did you feel like your 
you know, I, I want to make this valuable for our listeners also. Yeah. And so in order to do that, the last sort of table setting thing that I'd like to get un- to understand from you is, do you feel like you undertook this work to do some work on your own self? Or was it specifically just in the name of science and helping broaden the aperture to use the word, you know, were you trying to prove or disprove? Were you open to the healing journeys that it might offer you? Or was it something else? Okay. Uh, it's a good question. And it, it takes, I'm a professional. It, well, it take, just takes, it's going to take a couple of layers to get through. What I thought that I was doing in the first instance, I did not trust some of the hype that had built up around psychedelics. This was not pollen that had done that, but now in science, there's something called the Michael pollen effect. And when they're doing clinical studies, they have to allow for the way that the kind of wave that's come after pollen has enhanced the placebo and and raised participants' expectations of just what it's going to do to their depression or OCD. And that's largely because pollen has had such a big reach and so many things have been entrained and research departments and fundings come because of his book. And and not just his book, but him setting up the the center at, um, at Berkeley. And there's now this sort of strange loop between like pollen, the idea, and psychedelic research, where they're just mutually reinforcing. So what I felt, you know, to begin with, I thought that needs to be put through some kind of intellectual ringer. And so that was the motor fuel or the, for the book. And also, I but I definitely, I I, I might no bones about it. I want. I've been in a hospital in neurointensive care in neurosurgery for many years. I wanted to travel the world. So selling a book that enabled me to uh, go to lots of different cultures and experience different cultural takes rather than just the uh, Western mental health norm of uh, uh, um, psychological treatments seemed like a valuable thing to do. And so off I went. And I, the other thing that I would say is that I, I have a background in, in neuroscience, but I also uh, I have um, a huge interest in philosophy and in the arts. And I thought these, these subjects and broader humanities and cultural things were missing from the neuroscientific and psychotherapeutic accounts of psychedelics. So mm. they were the, that was the intellectual rocket fuel for setting off. But I realized as I underwent successive trips that some of the, some of what i uh, wanted to do was powered by a kind of anti-medical aggression and that had some roots in my childhood and growing up with a father that wanted me to be a doctor and my resentments about um you know being canalized or channeled into a particular life that i hadn't asked for myself and and so i realized that in fact the book did have this kind of subtext that grew and grew and grew. Uh, and the subtext being there was something very profound at stake in terms of my own coming to terms with who I was, why I was doing what I was doing, that taking responsibility for some of the the bad juice or the anger that was powering some of it as well. So I didn't escape scot-free. I wasn't able, you know, intellectually, I didn't try and be an objective third person. Um, uh, yeah, scientist, you, you were I very took, clear about that in the book. I, well, yeah. I took a bunch of drugs, but 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 <laughs> uh, uh, and recorded what was happening to me as the, as they were overpowering me. 
But in a more profound psychological way, I was just a first person participant going through my own version of trauma and, and, or, you know, mini trauma, childhood, you know, the childhood taking on of a paternal script. And that, that was played out quite powerfully across different locations. Well, let's get into that aspect of it because okay. I, I think it's, to me, it was important for us to sort of lay out a map of the why and the how. And so now we understand that you've, you've you know, taken 10 different psychedelics across 10 different settings in different, you know, the, the, the jungle, the Amazon in a clinic somewhere else in Santa Cruz. And I, I want to get less, I want to get away from sort of the, the mechanisms of how you did that. I, you know, I took this drug in this location. Yeah. I don't actually care about that. I want to understand you, when you went to these places and under the influence of these substances, what did you discover about yourself? Yeah, I find like, you, you know, being British and being in Oxford, my, my first reflex is to sort of try and intellectualize that response to that. You know, I want to talk about frameworks of interpretation. I, I think that, I think just that the sort of, there were different versions of this, but the, he, but the headline, the headlines were all of the stories that have, I've been rehearsing in my head about myself for 40 years are just stories and are in, are very flexible. In fact, they're almost empty and I could start a new story and it would almost be just as true as the story I've carried around. That was one thing. The other thing was that everything that psychedelics sprung on me about the nature of reality or the glory of nature or my love for my fellow human beings or indeed the sheer downright fucking strangeness of the world is somehow already there and psychedelics recast it in their own theater, but it's accessible without the drugs themselves. So mm. I staggered around, I, I, I call it 10 trips, but I actually did about 40, 40 different ceremonies in 60 days. It was like a kind of ultra psychedelic cathon. And I, I finished, I got to the finish line about 14 months ago and I've not taken a psychedelic since. It's not that I'm now anti-psychedelics. It's just I've got more than enough information to download for a good chunk of time. Uh, and I can put it into uh, many of the things that I learned about how to relate to myself and other people I can do without needing uploads psychedelically or plant-based uploads. I think that's fascinating. And I do, uh, for those folks who are listening who might be new to this whole universe, there is um, a belief. And again, I'm, I, I want to try and get out of the habit of overqualifying everything I'm saying here, because we could put qualifiers on qualifiers on, on virtually everything because it's first person, it's experiential. People have different experiences with different stuff. There's just, there's infinite potential qualifiers, but it is true that um, many people who have taken these substances under, you know, in, in different areas, spaces, times, and different ceremonies, there is a one major difference between this medicine and a lot of others is that a lot of other medicines are, you have to constantly take those medicines. And a lot of the research and a lot of um, what I know about it is that 
there tends to be a, you consume the medicine, you know, N number of times. And then as you said, you're good for a while. This is not like you're seeking new information constantly yeah. or you're, you're not, the, the goal is not to, to, you know, have an ayahuasca ceremony every weekend so that you can maintain this balance that this medicine may have shown you in your life that was not there before, for example. So on that vector, um, you cited being, I'm, I'm good for now. I've got more information. So the, in, the question then is for people listening, what, is, what are some examples of this information and how is it making your life better, worse, or different? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's useful to uh, make the comparison with standard pharmacology where you take, take the drug as a passive recipient. I think even, even in some of the clinical trials, there's, there's, there's a sense that people on psychedelics are just receiving an experience. And the, and, oops, sorry about that. And, the, and the, the experience in and of itself will do the transformation. But we know, as you suggested, we know from the neuroplasticity that, that the changes in the dendrites and the neurons will persist over quite a long period of time afterwards. But it's up to the person to engage with that, that window when things are molten in the brain or molten psychologically or molten spiritually. So that it requires actively engaging with the memory of the experience or the felt sense of the experience. And for me, it, I mean, so I, I since since coming away, I've got say say I've got five major things that I learned about myself, and one of them is that I I tend I I am more effeminate, for example, than I uh, I took myself uh, than I took myself to be. I think I've been very. I was brought up in a kind of an industrial northern heartland where machismo was the the rule. Well, taking ayahuasca, for example, in the Amazon just flooded me with a sense of uh, how, what you might call in cliche terms, my femininity and how I needed to nurture that. So that I, I've built a kind of outlet for that, not, not wearing dresses so much, but drawing, for example, and singing, for example, and just allowing that insight to consolidate around a number of practices where I'm actually taking responsibility for them. So it's not about this passive recipient of a message and then I'm changed. It's actually hinting at something that resonated with an intuition in myself and then going about taking actions to, you know, bring that into being. Beautiful. Beautiful. So a lot of the discussion around these medicines as therapeutic um, has to do with trauma, as you indicated earlier, briefly. Um, and yet there are uses, use cases for this medicine that transcend that. I think there's, we're in stage three or four clinical trials for, um, MDMA on PTSD and soldiers. It's been very effective. Um, a lot of, um, addiction issues. Uh, these substances have been incredibly, um, successful in clinical settings around, um, mitigating addiction. What are some other benefits that you think we should know about from your experiences that do transcend some of this past trauma? You indicated one that I found that found interesting, and maybe you can pull on this thread and feel free to take this anywhere you'd like. But you mentioned the stories that we tell ourselves. 
right? That that is such a, we think of those things as so indelible and they're a piece of me and this is who I am. And my understanding from your hint and of course from reading your book is that you found that these stories are actually very malleable and who you were yesterday has honestly technically very little to do with who you could be tomorrow. You could be someone entirely different should you change the story voluntarily about yourself, which to me seems very powerful. So let's go away from just specifically the PTSD treatment, the trauma treatment, which again, I want to acknowledge very, very powerful. But what are some of these other ones that you've hinted at that I I was able to extract from the book that you might share with our listeners? If you, I suppose uh, in, like, in psychopathology, uh, everyone knows what an addiction is. But for those of us that are not actively in addiction, we all know what a strong habit is. And we all know how some of those habits are adverse to our health. Or they may be working effectively as defense mechanisms, but at some point in the day or in the week, we wonder uh, about why we practice them. And maybe we, we admit to ourselves that we've got little, little choice over them. And one thing that psychedelics clearly, clearly does is it shines a light on um, habits as really being somehow superficial to who you are in the most radical way. And that what you think they are accomplishing for you uh, is in fact just like a, 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 a mirage. They're totally empty. And often people, I think it's quite a common thing for people to have uh, sort of tacitly resigned themselves to being at the mercy of X number of habits for the rest of their lives. But having this kind of sheer experience of the emptiness of these habits allows one to just uh, clear a space. But again, it's not about passively seeing that they're not necessary. It's really, you've got to practice the establishment of a new ha- a new habit. So I think in a way, it, that's why, that's why uh, people say that one night on psychedelics is the equivalent of a hundred hours of therapy. Um, it's, it, it's therapy only works if the patient is engaging in the wisdom that emerges from the interaction with the therapist. And the same is true for psychedelics. It's not that it's not this model of taking an SSRI and, or an aspirin and waiting for the chemistry to do its thing. It's about opening up some possible, a range of possibilities and then moving forward as those, those things are true and developing agency and a, and a spectrum of behaviors the accord with that insight. Mm. That's very helpful. It's very helpful. So you mentioned, I should say that just let me just bump. Cause I've spoke, please, please. I've, I've, I've spoken specifically there about habits, but that, I mean, obviously some habits are good. I'm, I'm talking about maladaptive habits. It's not. And, and I think another thing, another very obvious adjunct, is that you become very aware of the voice that runs through your head. A lot of the research has been around this default mode network, which is this kind of internal, ruminatory, daydreaming, resting state voice that we all have that just generates often bullshit and self-critical thoughts. And psychedelics somehow make this voice 
I mean, we we know the neurosciences that they they quieten down the default mode network, but they they make this voice stand out for the kind of ridiculous blabbermouth thing it is, and give you an opportunity to unhook from it. But again, rather like a meditation, you've got to keep on recognizing it and unhooking from it when you're str- sober a month later, and it's telling you that you here's another thing you're about to fail on, for example. And this isn't this obviously these are augmented in mental health conditions like depression or OCD. But studies show that healthy volunteers are under the under the crucifix of the same kind of tone of voice for a large chunk of the day. And a lot of the studies show that this has got a huge negative bias. There's not many internal voices that are out of our control that are taking us towards sunshine and light and cosmic ice cream. <laughs> cosmic ice cream. I'm going to use that one. That's good. So... You mentioned as an example, now I got a me- lots of things I'm trying to keep track of here. So uh, forgive me for taking some notes and putting some pins and some things here. So you mentioned, just suppose, I think was the language that you used, that you've got five, five ways in which this medicine, plant medicine had helped you. And you cited one as, you know, becoming more in touch with the feminine side. Yeah. And, I think and, like broadly, you might say creative, like having a creative outlook, allowing excellent. and then cultivating that. That would be one of them. Great. So let's go a little deeper there, because as you know, the, the listeners to the show, the watchers and listeners identify as creative, as de- identify as, well, as largely as entrepreneurial, which is a very creative um, undertaking in itself. Building a business is not just similar to, you know, building anything, building a home or a meal or as you could imagine. And so what ways specifically talking to this audience, do you feel like these plant medicines can, is it an an awakening, a dormant creativity? Is it amplifying an existing creativity? What was your experience and what would you report? So I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit, first of all, about the science of that. And, uh, we know that uh, when psychedelics are in, uh, active in the brain, they break down the modularity of perception so that uh, different p- parts of the brain that are not normally communicating with each other are lit up and into innovating each other in new ways. And this is what the neuroplasticity is. It's that new, sort of literally new spines are, are calling, uh, 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 spines are, uh, are either being generated or are, are, are strengthening existing path- pathways with areas of the brain that are not normally in uh, contact with each other. So it's just, it's this, and so sights and sounds and smells and interceptive things like uh, breathing and heartbeat and, and the feeling of your skin all get melded in with each other and you start you know just a lit you might even say you start to see the world in all of its metaphorical possibilities you know that suddenly what looked two-dimensional and very familiar to you looks fresh and unfamiliar and that's because these association cortices in the brain are just generating basically they're like playing on a giant organ you've only been playing on a few notes around middle c and suddenly the psychedelics are there and this infinite infinite noted organ is like smashing out new tunes 
So that's what's happening. You know, it's a little bit delinquent, the description of it, but that's kind of what's happening in the basic neuroscience. And I think you take that to a psychological or a spiritual level. I think that the the sort of narrow ways of thinking about um, this is who I am and this is the discipline I'm in and it's different from that discipline uh, or, or, or that category is there and that category is there, all those kind of modularities and hierarchies that are part of our normal thinking and our normal perception about the world collapse and they allow for this kind of uh, cross-pollination or uh, uh, where something which you wouldn't have thought uh, goes well in this domain actually turns out to light up that domain in ways that you couldn't have anticipated before. And, you know, for, for me, that's been, I, I thought I was going to write a very straight book, uh, almost a textbook. Uh, but because of my uh, experience with psychedelics, I felt I just wanted to start um, being more and more original because it felt that I was tasting myself in a new way by writing about these things. And I think there's something about psychedelics that allows ourselves to revisit these accounts of ourselves and taste them in different ways. In, and that's, that's a kind of working definition of creativity. Mm, I'd love that. Uh, and I think that is a very helpful, um, I'm resisting the word framework, but I'm just going to use it. I help a framework for helping people who are listening right now think about this, not just the scientific aspect, but the, the desire, the, the ability to see the connection, right? That is, as you said, a loose definition of creativity, connecting, you know, two or more ideas in new and novel and ideally useful ways. Like I think that's Sir, Sir Ken Robinson's definition of creativity. Right. Um, RIP. And it, like, to me, understanding that that is always available to us, and that is a benefit being on the other side of taking this plant medicine, is that it's always available to us. And yet, because of life and modern times and the way our brain works and the structure of those brains, the hierarchies, is we organize and relate things to one another and categorize them in a specific way. But once you have seen these things, as you have seen or visited these things through plant medicine, would you say it's almost as if you can't unsee them? Yeah, I, I'll go along with that. As long as you uh, reprise what I was saying earlier about how you need to keep on engaging with the practice yeah. of uh, of your new way of seeing. And I think, um, you see, it's going to give you, as Michael Pollan would say, or as John Hopkins researchers would say, it's going to give you what if you take something like 5-MeO-DMT the, the, on, on all the surveys, it's going to give you one of the five most memorable experiences of your life, your most life-changing. But the danger is that most, of, most people who've had children, for example, would say even, that having a child has changed them, not because of the moment they've had the child, but because of the existing relationship with the child that they now remember having, the, the birth. The birth stands out because it was the start of a long, deeply nuanced and rich relationship. With 5-MeO, it's five minutes of unbelievable, profound, uh, cataclysmic reality. But that's just an experience. It's the but, so what needs to be borne in mind is you need to cultivate a relationship with something that's an experience that's then translated into behaviors or 
artifacts or creative output or being kinder to your family or, you know, being more humble than you were or being uh, altruistic or, you know, it needs to have translations. Otherwise, I think the danger is we just turned into these um, acquirers of bucket list mystical experiences, which just becomes another kind of, and another kind of check. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And an exchange, a a status thing and a social exchange rate. Yeah. I've done that. It was amazing. You know, and we're, we're as tired as we sound as we, as we tell the next person. Let's pull on that thread. So if work is required, is the work because you have tasted possibility? Does the work seem easier to you? or more available to you than other types of work that you know is good for you, but you might, because of all of the frameworks and typical trappings of the mind and the day that we all live and being a human in these times, because you have experienced this medicine, are you, is, is this, does this work fall into a special category, this ongoing work? Does yeah, it fall I- into a special category because it, A, has been so profound and you've seen the potential while you were tripping. And then B, you are, there's a, some sort of motivation to hang on to that or to maximize or to trans transform. Yeah. You know, I, it's interesting because I, I, I use the word, you've got to do the work and, and, and now you're echoing it back. And in a way, Turning it into work is just replacing the, you know, already Protestant overachieving <laughs> output driven um, person that went into the psychedelic ceremony. And I think this is exactly why I'm asking. Right. So I think what, what, what's really, what's really downloaded in such a unbelievable form is just how fluid all notions of who you are and what you should be doing can be. And so that if there's, rigidity and this reflex to take oneself seriously, then psychedelics seem to just loosen, critically loosen that self-labeling, that self-definition and allow a kind of, allow a a sort of degree of uh, spontaneity, you might say, or uh, allow for a a kind of a, a, a less entrenched version of yourself to take hold. And that, that seems that, that, that fact, that fluidity seems to be generative. It allows for a generativity, which it doesn't need to be timetabled or forced through. That's been my experience anyway. Very helpful. Thank you for articulating that. And this makes me want to um, put a pin in that and explore this other area that popped into my mind. Um, I do have some notes on it here in front of me, but I want to hold what we've just said and try and revisit it with a a new context after we cover this next bit here, which is around in the book, you articulate some things that I have not either experienced and or heard from my awareness of plant medicines. And I guess I'm aware of them. And yet you have made a very strong case for them which is that by removing or transplanting some of these experiences from their sort of native environment, that we have potentially done a disservice and we at least have to be aware of um, 
to, to read the specific words that you've argued that by removing psychedelics from their cultures and rituals, both indigenous and underground, we risk rejecting the expertise and the contexts which hold the key to understanding them and from which their real benefits may derive. Yeah, I, I mean, let's go back to pollen. Uh, what pollen. What pollen presents so lucidly is a Western account of modern psychedelic usage. And really, there's two strands to that. There's what we've been talking about in terms of the neuroscientific exploration of psychedelics, which has been a huge thing that didn't happen in the 50s or 60s, obviously, but now that we've got imaging techniques, that's that's taken off, trying to find out exactly what the mechanisms of action of psychedelics are. And, on, uh, and then allied with that and close to that, but not the same, is the psychotherapeutic efficacy of psychedelics and how people with depression can be, have their symptoms alleviated in a way that existing SSRIs uh, are not able to do. So the, the, there's two vantage points or perspectives on psychedelics, but there are others, and they have been neglected in lots of the literature and in lots of the conversations and commercializations that have taken place since Pollen's book. And the, you might categorize that as a medical model, but there's a spiritual model for taking psychedelics, which does not really work in the same way as psychotherapy. Uh, it, it, it has a broader canvas. And even within the spiritual, you can fractionate that between like Western Californian or New Age spiritualities that are incorporating psychedelics as part of a drive for wellness and flourishing and things that are harder to measure. Uh, and, and then on the other hand, there's something that you might include, which is shamanic. And that would be the way that the traditional cultures view these medicines within the context of their understanding of reality. And for them, it's less about we take uh, this medicine so that we can see the nature of reality. It's more that the nature of reality is how it is for us. And psychedelics are psychedelic medicines are just part of something that's already existing. They're not, they're not turning your Western perception of things on its head. They're just reinforcing the sense that everything is already psychedelic, literally manifested by us, mind manifesting according to those cultures. And then one other tradition, which isn't really honor itself with tradition because it wouldn't like to be thought of as a tradition, is the kind of recreational psychonautical use of psychedelics where they don't want a system. They don't want a container. They don't want an epistemology. They just want to jazz things up and not take themselves too seriously. You can argue that it's got its own philosophy and uh, spirituality to it, but it's really its, its main drive is to be countercultural. So, all of which is to say is that there's just psychedelics can take the shape of the whoever's looking at it, whichever group is looking at it. Psychedelics can inform that and offer up some of its good, but it can't be reduced to any one of those things. That last statement is the profound one in all that. I feel like it, there is a desire for us to categorize and reduce and simplify. And what I'm hearing you say, and tell me if I'm misspeaking here, is that that's a mistake to try and sort of galvanize this as a, as the, it provides this function for these types of people would be a misunderstanding of the medicine. Is that fair? 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think, I mean, it goes back to personal experience. I think one one thing that's very, very common is that you just have some profound sense of um, how your, persp- while, while you're under the influence, of how your perspective is shaping um, uh, reality, in the reality that there's something about who you are that is infiltrating what you see, what you feel. And that, that's what psychedelics makes very clear. And yet the whole culture around psychedelics is reenacting that. So neuroscience sees 2HA receptors in the default mode network. New Age spirituality sees um, uh, people finding their prana or being told by a jaguar that, uh, that they should get a boob augmentation uh, you know there's just a there's just di- different ways of casting it and psychedelics just well, I, I when i started the book when i started my research i used this metaphor of how psychedelics were a multifaceted jewel and that there were these different discourses and each discourse saw a different facet of it but they were all talking about the same jewel but by the end of the book and after all of these strange experiences and really thinking about it i thought this dual metaphor isn't really cutting it because the dual metaphor it implies that there's one object with different facets. But I think a better metaphor is that psychedelics is more like water. Water, we know everything about water chemically and physically, but experientially, we can only see water if we've got it in a container. Otherwise, you can't see it. And, if, and what we know about water is that it takes on the shape of the container. So when it comes to what the shape of water is, we don't really know. It's a mystery. It's all we're really seeing is the shape of the container. And we mistake the shape of the container for the shape of water. And that's, I think, what happens in all these different discourses about psychedelics. Very, very useful way of thinking about it. Now, you referenced, uh, just before that very elegant articulation, you you referenced um, the spiritual use the spiritual benefit the potential spiritual benefit which i think is interesting and my understanding and i would feel free to correct me if i'm misunderstanding this is that the research is now indicating that the use of these substances uh these medicines has gone across millennia and as far back as we can see and it's not just these uh you know, cultures that are living in the mountains, for example, that, you know, performed this, you know, ceremony one time, that it is actually a habitual that things in Christianity and in the ancient Greeks even. And there's, so this, our understanding of how proliferated the human desire to alter our consciousness is, is virtually ubiquitous across cultures. Yeah. That's my understanding. And I do think that that is a chapter of this that is either miss or under understood that I would like to, to try and reinforce for our listeners that this is, this has been everywhere for all of time. And let's just start to understand it as a, as a fabric, a piece of the fabric rather, or thread in the fabric of the cloth that we have always worn. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there was a thing in nature last week, um, where they they've just it's like with carbon dating and improved technologies in terms of historifying um practices 
new things are emerging and they just they found hair samples in Menorca from the Bronze Age that showed multiple different plant-based substance use many of which were psychoactive they haven't um and and it seems like each week there's you know or each month there's more and more pointing to that and i think it it kind of if the if the technology however the technology was stumbled on as soon as it's experienced it's quite obvious that it's kind of a, a to to use the the language of the american west coast it's some kind of hack on our source code and it allows a very direct relationship with something bigger than ourselves even if that thing these days might be no more than this idea that you're just a series of stories that are you can, that can be recast even if it, if even if that uh, and the bigger the story the better because small stories tend to eat you alive you know if you put all your if you put all your worth in um being the cleverest or the wealthiest that kind of story is just not going to allow, allow you to grow into it ultimately and so psychedelics seem to open up a space and this is the case with their associations with the greek culture and with the christian culture they open up a space for this boundless thinking about relationship to self and other mm. i'm guessing that you're going to be wary of giving too much advice and i will disclaim like crazy in the introduction to this so that we don't have to here yeah but at the risk of giving advice, what can you say or what would you say to our listeners who are curious, to our listeners who are wondering if this may be helpful to them across any of these vectors that you've described, medicinal, traumatic, uh, psychotherapeutic, um, exploratory, of spirit, exploratory, spiritual. You've talked about all sorts of different modes, if I, I'm going to yeah. you know, use a simple word. And at the risk of giving advice, can you give some? Yeah, I mean, um, I would say that I would say like I've got there's a responsible clinician. Uh, the advice of a responsible clinician would be um, if you're thinking of doing this um, for fragile mental health, then in, in, in then think about it carefully because there can be adverse uh, experiences, not often perhaps, but it's a, it certainly has a risk element to it. You can minimize that risk by going through going through your experience with someone who's relatively expert in a safe place and th uh and i think if you've tried other things to treat your condition and found that um uh they've been only marginally helpful if helpful at all then i think it may well be a a risk worth taking depending on the gravity of your condition so that's the sort of clinical condition i think if you're if you're nature is openness to new experience if you've got that trait in you then i i think that um uh entertaining it as something that you might do once or twice a year in our on on you know secularly sacred occasions again in a safe environment i think i think you uh my my sense is that however difficult the experience might be it will contain nuggets and insights that provide you with something to really take forward in a, in a, in potentially a hugely transformational way. Beautiful. Thank you for that. How do you feel now? You said a year on 14 months. Yeah. Um, I, like I said, I have you not. Just, you've basically given birth. 
All right, but, again, the, the book is 10 Trips, the, the, real, the New Reality of Psychedelics. You've given birth to this book. And now what? Now how do you feel? Now what, what are you entertaining? What does the future look like for Andy Mitchell? Well, it's, it's you know, just going back to this, you know, when I started writing this book, I wasn't sure um, where I was going in terms of my profession, whether it was time to try something other than working clinically with people. And on the other side of this book, I've, I can say quite clearly that I'm, I'm ch I've changed my idea of who I am. And I've just written a proposal for a new book about uh, extremes and how ex uh, it's called the extremophiles. And it's how different people in living very different lives at different extremes are telling us something about who we are as normal people, whether it's the Kogi tribesman that spends the first 18 years of his life in a cage learning about his body, or an astronaut that gets stuck on the Mir space station for a, a year while his country disintegrates, or Steph Curry hitting regularly from the half court, even though he's six foot two and transforming the game. Just, I want, I want to, psychedelics have shown me that there's something about extremity and criticality that gives us insights about who we are. And we know that the culture is getting more extreme in various ways. So, so, so that's what my next project is. But I've also just, um, I've also just not, I'm no longer thinking of myself as a thing or a writer or a, a doctor. I, I'm, I, I find myself just being drawn to having an eclectic range of things on the go, which I didn't, you know, I, I grew up in, as I said earlier, at, the, at the outset, with this installation of you must have a career, it must be white collar and respectable and reflecting your education. And that's now just a puddle on the floor and I'm enjoying stirring that around and just seeing what comes up. So I'm, I'm doing a TV drama and I've got plans to get um, a, an altruistic project off the ground as well. So it's just, my life looks very different this side this side of having taken all those drugs and writing the book, even though I'm not actively taking anything. Yeah. Well, I think you were clear that, that the effect, if you're willing to do the work and it sounds like you've done ongoing work to sort of establish or navigate the pattern that you discovered while you were under the influence, uh, sounds like an active process to use your word. Um, I'm wondering how, Let's go to a very maybe trite, but hopefully revelatory example, which is now you're at a cocktail party and you get introduced as a neuropsych or maybe even a former neuropsychologist. And this allows you to, the door is open. Again, let's just say, to be fair, that you're in the United States because the United States identifies more about your job than other cultures might. But someone at a party identifies, oh, this is neuropsychologist or former neuropsychologist, Andy Mitchell. You know, this is my friend, Tony. And Tony naturally says, wow, former, well, what does that mean? So the door essentially is open for you to describe who you are now. What do you say? Do you identify as, you know, a human? Do you identify as, you know, with your job and now you, you you've, you've just disintegrated or yeah are understood all of these past narratives that you've had about yourself but you still have to you know move through life so how have you just chose to describe yourself 
This is complicated because it's complicated for so many creators who are listening, who are writing. I'll just, I have a documentary film in process. I'm writing another book. I'm shooting an ad campaign next week. You know, I've got 52 things going on. And I do think that this is where the culture is going. So perhaps what you learned in, uh, under the influence of this medicine can help our creators and entrepreneurs who are trying to describe themselves. How would you do this? Yeah, I say, okay, so I'll angle it that way. I, and I would say, I, I mean, it, it sounds a little bit West Coast, but I would say that I am trying to make my life into a work of art, Tony. That's what I'm trying to do. And the thing about this work of art is that it's not going to be super good if I turn that work of art into a series of goals and accomplishments. And it is going to be good if I'm receptive each day to where things are leading and and I'm letting go each day of what ideas I might have about what I should be doing and um and how to do it so that it, so there's a sort of radical openness tony about accepting that life is unfolding and I've learned to fluidly respond to its unfolding rather than kind of muscling it into a series of neurotic outputs uh, and so I don't to, from that point of view um, Tony, my good friend, Tony, my new friend, Tony, um, I, 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 the reason why I'm wearing this dress at this cocktail party, Tony, is because I just decided on a whim that I was feeling more of a woman than a, a balding, hairy, uh, Brit today. Uh, and that is part of who I am these days. Brilliant. Thank you very, very much for that. Um, I think that that is a. Uh, a great guide now looking backward seems like a reasonable guide for our conversation. The best is always at the end, right? Right. Um, um, so you're working on a new book. Yeah. This book is out now again, it's called 10 trips. Um, yeah. Interestingly, you've got the American version and I've got the British version and which is this giant floating wow. strawberry and um, the Americans, preferred i have some sort of a leaf yeah you have a, a, a leaf and and i don't really know why the leaf or the strawberry but the art departments have these things called dog whistles and they're like they're apparently dog whistles are ideas for people who know without realizing that they know until they've been summoned by a meme or an image so that's why that's why a strawberry and a leaf there's no strawberries and leaf in the book but <laughs> It's okay. like a mating call for people who are drug curious, I guess. <laughs> Thank you so much for the playful insights. Um, the work that you're doing is very important. I found the work, uh, I found the book in- incredibly engaging. Um, and this conversation was an absolute treat, a supplement to that work. So thank you. And is there anywhere you would care to steer our listeners beyond just, again, as someone who recommends the book? Beyond the book, like, is there anything that, um, is there anywhere that you would like to direct their attention or suggest that they direct their attention here at the end of our time? Well, I, I will say that my experience with indigenous people um, just shows that they have such a different relationship with the natural world than we do. And I've tried to make uh that one of the practices that I've continued because it's all very well to feel a connection while you're really high with that tree or that flower or that strawberry. 
it's another thing to, re- you know, it, I mean, I, I want to say it's like a Groucho Marx line, but it always comes back to climate change. It's the thing that binds us all together. And psychedelics in indigenous cultures just shows clearly where we went wrong in the first place in objectifying things in the way that we have. And they don't do that. And I think just having su- having some experience of that, uh, either by going to, you know, visit these tribes in one way or another, or or to or to 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 take a non psychedelic journey with a shaman around that theme, and then use that as a basis for engaging with nature in whatever way you uh, you can, and you know, whatever way is possible given your circumstances. Then that would be that would be one thing that I would say. And poetry, natu- poetry, I would say, oh. in conjunction with nature, is poetry about nature. I mean, I grew up. Uh, studying Wordsworth and I hated it. And now 30 years later on psychedelics, I I think it's just, you know, manna from heaven reading these things in a garden in Oxford. It sounds very, it sounds very, I realize how privileged that sounds, but the, the, the actual experience with indigeneity is the opposite of that. Thank you for providing such clarity and insight. Um, Pleasure. For, for helping open our eyes, ears, hearts, and minds to the next chapter of what we're learning about uh, all these plant medicines. Thank you for being a guest on the show. For everyone out there in the world, thank you for paying attention to the show, being a part of this community. And until next time, from Andy and myself, we bid you. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing the show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. <laughs>